the scripture comes from uh, Exodus 20, uh, verse 15. It says, you shall not steal. And then we'll also be looking at Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we thank you for Ryan and his gift of preaching. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our, our hearts and our minds, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we would leave from this place transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been uh, trucking through the Ten Commandments together. This is uh, week 10, and it, we took a couple weeks to set it up to understand the context of really what these commands are about. And one of the things that we discovered about the Ten Commandments was something super crucial. It's the prologue to the Ten Commandments that says, uh, where, where Moses basically uh, is, is writing down what God says, and God, God says, I'm the Lord your God who led you out of the land of slavery, who led you, led you out of Egypt. You shall, or I am, therefore you shall, is, is kind of the, the way that it works. And the reason that's so crucial to our understanding of the Ten Commandments is if we just take them on their face, apart from the grace of God delivering the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and the grace of Jesus Christ delivering us out of sin, we'll see the Ten Commandments as a ladder that we have to climb to get to God. And that is, therefore, uh, in, in no way uh, what God has in mind with this. Rather, it's the life of living in God's grace, what it looks like to live the best life that God has for us because he's rescued us from our sin. And so I just like to say that every week because it's so important to our understanding of this. Uh, so, so this week as we're looking at uh, the Eighth Commandment, uh, you shall not steal, just have a question for you uh, and maybe you'll answer it with me. Um, have you ever been stolen from before? Anybody? Anybody been stolen from before, you know, maybe, maybe it was uh, somebody you knew, maybe somebody you didn't know. Uh, maybe it was at your house or your church parking lot. <laughs> that happened here, that's a true story. Um, or maybe it was, you know, online or maybe identity theft or it could have been any of those things. But there's a certain sense that you get when you're stolen from where you just feel violated. I shared a story with you guys uh, earlier this year about uh, someone that had stolen from me. They had stolen my credit card number somehow and had, um, you know, therefore decided to make some purchases that I, I would never make, but they decided to make. And th it's interesting because that's not an unusual occurrence for any of you probably. But here's what happened with my situation is, is um, uh, I, Sunday night I'm looking, getting ready for the week and paying bills, all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm looking and I see uh, that there is a $1,047 charge from uh, the designer company Dior on my credit card statement. And at first, like, I'm kind of looking at Megan being like, okay, come on, what's up, you know? But then I remember that it would be the Target dollar spot, not that. So um, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, babe. Um, but, but what happened was early the next morning, I'm thinking, okay, I'll call and get this taken care of. There's protection for this. The next morning, I, I go to the, the front door at 830. Somebody rings the doorbell. It's a special delivery. Delivered at 8.30 in the morning, next day shipping. And it's from none other than Dior. 
And so I opened the sweater up, opened the package, it's a sweater, it's got this real fancy like zipper, uh, and I, I showed, I, I could never wear this, but like somebody like Ben Lynn could totally pull this thing off. Um, and, and he was wondering what I had done with it. I don't, ben, are you here? Um, yeah, yeah, he is. <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, and so anyway, I, it's, it's kind of an interesting story because I'm thinking, okay, I need to send this back. What do I do with this? Credit card, yada, yada. Well, then about 2.30 in the afternoon, my doorbell rings again. It's a crazy day in our house. A guy comes up to the door, and he says, there was a package mistakenly delivered to your house this morning. And he reads off the tracking number, and he says, I need to take it back. And I'm like putting the pieces together, and all of a sudden as he's standing at my door, I realize this is the guy that's stealing from me. He's standing right in front of me. And I'm, all these things are going through my mind. I'm thinking, do I like pull him inside the house and keep him here? You know, do I like jump in the car with him? And I, 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 I'm not thinking super clearly anyway. He leaves, and I'm not super kind to him because I call him a thief. But, you know, as I was thinking about that story this week, as I was confronted by this command. You know what I wish I would have done? His name was Victor. That's what he told me his name was. Probably really not Victor, obviously. But I wish that I would have gone up to Victor and got in his car and took him shopping. I, I wish I would have had the grace within me to say, you know what, the stuff doesn't matter. I want to I show the lavish grace of God for you. You wanted that Dior sweater? Let's go buy two. Let's go do this, man. I wish I could have shown him God's extravagant grace in a remarkable way. Because I think that's what Jesus calls us to do. Do you remember the, the, in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about retaliation from Matthew 5. And he says this, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And, and he's talking about this idea of going the extra mile with people. Because that's really what he came to do for us, and this is the angle that I want to take on this command this week, is that God changes our hearts by giving us more than we could ever take for ourselves. Let me say it again. God changes our hearts by giving us more than we could ever take for ourselves. I've discovered that the happiest people on the face of the planet are the people that actually believe this. The people that actually believe that they, as we sang, they shall not want, like the, the psalmist says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. What would it look like for us to get that more deeply today? So I've got kind of four movements of this sermon that I want to talk about today. The first one is this, God shares. Second one, we steal. Third one, God gives. The fourth one, we steward. Let's dig in together. God shares. So God's plan is is to let us share in the stewardship of his world. If you've got a Bible, you can flip it open to the early chapters of Genesis. Much of our understanding of stewardship must come from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because it's before sin enters the world. If not, we'll be forced to, to contrive our concepts of, of stewardship from a broken and fallen world. And we, we gain those things, even in the command. But there's something in the garden that I don't want us to miss. Let me read a few verses for us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Genesis 2, 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, 
and there was no man to work the ground. Genesis chapter 2, 15. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is all before sin enters the world. What are the themes that you're seeing and hearing from God's word? The world is empty, and, and God's saying this, because you bear my image, I want to share the responsibility of stewardship and cultivation with you. I want you to know me on that kind of a level. I didn't just create it all for you and then just let you exist in it. No, he invites us to participate in the cultivation of what we see in this world. Because he knows, God knows us, and knows that we were, he made us to be a part of things, to have a relationship, not to just own things, but to steward things. And that's the difference in understanding this command and not understanding it. To steward something is to manage a possession in light of a relationship, right? But to just own something is to just possess an, an inanimate object. And to steal something is to take that inanimate object. But stewardship is all about this relationship. And God wants to share it with us. Think about it like this. People have often asked us, why is this church called New City Church? And some people thought, you know, maybe it's because they're bringing something new into the city. And you could interpret it that way. But our presupposition from the beginning has been that God's been at work in this community long before we ever showed up on the scene, and he will continue to be uh, in wor at work in this community, and we just want to come alongside of that. Really why our church is called New City Church is because the kingdom of God began in a garden, an uncultivated garden. And do you know where the kingdom of God will end? In a city. I, f I find it very interesting that that's how God has set this world up and made us participants of the cultivation of his creation. He uses words like dominion and subdue, to rule over, to reign. He gives us those responsibilities. And because of this, everything that we own and possess belongs to God. We are merely stewards of it. Now, he gives us the grace and the gift of hard work. Sometimes we feel the curse a lot more, amen? But he gives us this gift of work. In eternity, you will be working because it's good and God created us to work. Now, the, the, the consequences of the fall for men were that the, the ground would be hard to cultivate, right? And we, we sense that every single day. You will sense that tomorrow morning when you show up at the office or your place of employment. But there's this subtle, luring temptation from the enemy that lurks within us all. And it's this really short phrase that we learn uh, as soon as we can talk. Mine. Right? It doesn't take you long to realize how human beings view stewardship until you have kids. Mine. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait, where'd they learn that? Right? Because I must have taught them that somewhere, right? Maybe some, something in the way that I handle possessions shows this broken stewardship. So God has created us to share in the possession and the cultivation of his world. And it is so essential to our understanding of this command today. So I wanted to start with that. I didn't want to just blow by that. The second thing is this. We steal. We steal because we have a broken relationship with money and possessions, which ultimately reflects a broken understanding and a relationship with God. And we need this command because we failed to trust and believe in God's provision for our lives. 
Stealing isn't just about being poor or greedy, it's about being human. And only through faith can we really trust in God's provision for our lives. So what is stealing? Where does a heart that steals, what is that heart like? Stealing occurs when we try to secure provision in our own power. Let me say that one more time. When does stealing occur? It occurs when we try to secure provision in our own power. Now that's a really broad statement, isn't it? It's not just, you know, stealing the G.I. Joe gun from the store like Kevin Shaw did when he was a kid. That's true. You know, it's, it's, it's more than that. I mean, it's, 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 wrong, it's wrong taking, but it's also wrong keeping. When I was in college, um, I learned a lot about stewardship and how broken my relationship was with money uh, there. You, some of you know stories, but I have more. <laughs> uh, uh, freshman year, there was this movie theater, right, that uh, I, I just learned that the, the gift of a student ID, right, a student ID. So if you're unfamiliar with what a student ID can get you, is it can get you into things cheaper or sometimes free. And so we like to go to the movies as uh, freshmen in college, and we would go in, in Lexington, Kentucky, we'd go to this movie theater, and they had this deal where they would let you go to the movie for $5 if you just flashed your student ID. You saved a few bucks or whatever. And so, um, and so we, we took advantage of that, but here's kind of what we would do once we got in. Um, so we would go in, and we would immediately find a movie theater that had just finished showing a movie. And then we would walk through that theater, and it would be littered with garbage, which is exactly what we wanted to see. We wanted to see the extra-large popcorn that had the free refill and the extra-large drink cups that had the free refills as well. And so, uh, so what we'd do is we would uh, we'd, we'd, we'd grab those, and we'd, you know, we were sanitary beings. We weren't animals, I don't think. <laughs> We'd go clean them up, right? And then we'd show up at the concession stands with our free refill drinks and cups, and the concession people would just shake their heads at us. And then we'd watch movies, and then that movie would be over. We'd go get a refill, and we'd go to another movie. We'd just keep doing that as long as we wanted to. I'm a thief. I'm a thief, and I wish I could just share, you know, uh, illustrations of times when it was kind of cute and funny. But the bottom line is I'm a thief, and I'm willing to bet that you are too. Wrong taking is taking, because I want to talk about two different sides of this, wrong taking and wrong keeping. Wrong taking is taking possession of things through improper, unethical, and illegal means. Ultimately seeking dishonest gain. Now, we think about robbery. We think about Victor, the thief, right? We think, we think about robbery like that, just flat out taking someone else's possessions. Or like Brandon said, we, we, we think about shoplifting, which every one of the leaders, the staff and the elders of this church has shoplifted. I don't know if that gives you comfort or not. Uh, but uh, maybe you have to, I don't know. Um, but, but I think stealing shows us what our hearts really believe about God's power to provide in our lives. Corporately, uh, we've been a nation of thieves, if we can go there. Um, we've stolen people. We've stolen land. Um, and we've been treating women like less than full human beings, as corporately as a country. I mean, for instance, it wasn't until 1974 until a woman, uh, a woman could get a mortgage on their own without a, without a man's co-signing. That's just 45 years ago. I mean, we, we've just been taking and dishonoring the image of God since the beginning, and, and there are implications of that into what we sense today, but we typically think about stealing in a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing, but I think the, the, the far more uh, legitimate claim uh, to call us thieves today is more about uh, stealing, um, 
you know, like an impersonal theft. So that could be, um, you know, stealing from companies, stealing from organizations, stealing online. Um, things like maybe stealing supplies from work, stealing media online, stealing time from employers, stealing from the government on our taxes by fudging our income numbers and exemptions, stealing from insurance companies, filing false claims and keeping the money, or we can steal by getting ourselves into such financial disarray that we can never pay the money back. We're thieves. We're thieves, and, and we're tempted to believe just because it's not this personal one-on-one theft thing that happens that this command doesn't apply to us, but it runs much deeper in the hidden crevices of our hearts. But, but stealing isn't just wrong-taking. That's the obvious one. It's also wrong-keeping. And there's a variety of situations that we can look at, but I'll, I'll mention, mention two quickly. Um, wrong-keeping toward God and then also wrong-keeping toward the poor. Uh, wrong-keeping toward God. So uh, some of you know my financial journey because I've been pretty open with it and my, my generosity journey uh, as well. But Megan and I have been in full-time ministry for a couple years before we ever gave sacrificially toward the kingdom of God. You heard that right. I was a pastor encouraging people to give without giving for a couple years. It's pretty, pretty dirty, I know. Um, as much as I would love to tell you that we didn't give because of Megan's shoe fetish, um, it wasn't, right? It was because I um, was a terrible example in that area um, because of my unbelief. And I led very poorly uh, with money early on because my spirituality was connected, was disconnected from my view of money and my understanding of money. And you can live a long time that way. In fact, there are many people that go to their graves living that way. Money is this thing over here, spirituality is this thing over here, and they never cross paths. But the thing you see Jesus do is he always connects the two because one reveals the other always. And so, you know, I had, a, I had a, a poverty line salary as a new pastor that was just getting going. And my mentality was completely justifiable, maybe even like yours, where I would say we cannot afford to give. We just can't do it. And, you know, Megan was just beginning to stay at home. And, and it was justifiable. It was understandable to everyone except God. It wasn't until I was reading through the book of Malachi one day that the Lord just stopped me in my tracks and pulled the emergency brake on me, and, and I was reading through Malachi 3, and, and the scripture said this, will man rob God? This is Malachi, one of the last prophets in the, in the Older Testament, um, prophesying against, against Israel and the potential judgment that's coming ahead unless they repented, and he goes on to say this, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. At the time, it was this idea that a tenth of everything went to the, the storehouse, the temple, uh, the synagogue, for the, for the worship of God's people. And, and the word says that we literally, it's not just a suggestion. It says, no, you literally rob God when you don't, you don't give to the cause of his kingdom. Now, it, for me, it revealed much of my brokenness and the way I view possessions and I'm still tempted to view them today. I'm tempted to say, how much of this money should I give away that I've earned? Yet God's mentality for us is that maybe rather we should ask, how much of God's money should we keep? How much of his possessions should we keep for 
ourselves. And, and really, this giving generously toward the kingdom of God is, is really kind of about two things. It's about protection of the gospel and advancement of the gospel. That's the two things that we're trying to do as we give generously. And we need a priority of both because God has called us to protect the gospel, to protect it at all costs. That's why he's given leaders in the church. And that, that costs resources for us to do that well, but also the advancement of the gospel to places and people that it has not yet reached through church planting. So that's kind of one side of it. The other side of it is this, wrong keeping toward the poor. I was struck by how much God's word says about giving to the poor this week as I studied. And, and as I was thinking through our own city, Metro Atlanta, I discovered something really interesting that I read a few months ago. And it's this, that Atlanta has the worst income equality in the country, worst income inequality in the country. And what's that mean? That means that the difference between the haves and the have-nots is greater in Atlanta than any other city in the country. So you would think, oh, maybe New York, maybe L.A., some of these uh, kind of bigger cities than us, Chicago. No, it's, it's, it's not. It's Atlanta. And, and here's what that means for us. Uh, I, I, think it, I think it's because this idea of most of our neighborhoods and and, uh, and communities throughout Atlanta are not mixed income communities. There's the haves and there's the have-nots. And you see this as you look at a map. And, and what happens is, is how, how do resources get into the have-nots' hands when they're never interacting with the haves? Right? And so, you know, I was even convicted to think about even the neighborhoods that we live in. Are those neighborhoods a way of shielding us from the have-nots? And what would it look like to to live in a little bit more community where resources are more readily available to the people that need them the most. How can that ever change? Here's what John wrote about in 1 John 3. He said, if anyone has the world's goods, so the, the possessions that belong to God that he's entrusted to us, if anyone has those world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And here's what that means. It means that there's this active unbelief that happens whenever we're approached by someone that he calls him a brother, so in relationship with. I'm not just talking about, the, you know, a panhandler on the street. That's a worthy cause to give to as well when God calls you to do that. We're talking about people that we know. And the thing that I begin to realize is that I don't know a lot of people that are impoverished. Is it because that they don't exist? Or because I've created a life where I never have to cross paths. I think the latter is more true for me, maybe for you. And, and, and so he says that there's this active um, unbelief that happens to, to, to close our hearts off toward the poor when we have those resources. And, um, and we cannot spiritually afford to farm this out to the government or even the institution of the church. Because it's about individuals. And I don't know about you, but I've been, in, I've been in this struggle my whole adult life. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I, nine times out of ten what I do is I just give up because it's too hard. It's too hard to know. You, you, you give, you get taken advantage of, right? Uh, oh, he's probably just going to blow it on booze. Yeah, he might just blow it on booze, but he might not, right? And you begin to realize that your generosity is, is more about you than it is God. And... I don't know what the answer is. All I know is what the scriptures say. And I know that the poor have a huge place in God's heart 
for us as Christians, and I think we have to change the way that we view the poor. Um, and, and the reason is, is a lot of times we have this idea of what um, sociologists and economists would call an assets-based kind of approach to gener- generosity. Um, uh, um, and it's broken where we see it's just relationships are just about a transaction. But when we see the poor as God sees them as image bearers, what begins to happen is we see that we need the relationship more than they need the money. And that's what begins to happen as you delve in. And so, you know, maybe some possible next steps for us could be to serve in under-resourced communities. For some of my friends, it has been not buying the types of houses and the types of neighborhoods that they could because they have a value on this. That's radical. But isn't Jesus radical? What, what would that look like for you to not just overlook and bypass the poor? Thirdly, so we've looked at this idea that God shares, that we steal, and we steal in a lot of different ways. But here's the beauty of it all, is that God gives. He continues to give. God changes our hearts by outgiving us. If you have a Bible, I want you to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And this is a passage where Paul is talking about the poor in Jerusalem and his heart for them and the church's concern for them. After all, the movement of Christianity was birthed out of that city. How can we not care for those poor? And here's what he talks about in this. Is he, talks about, he talks about salvation and redemption in economic terms. And as I think about it, it really resonates with me. Listen to it. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This passage explains what Jesus has come to give us in terms that we can understand, right? Economic terms. Jesus comes and he offers an upside-down kingdom is what he's saying, is that one where he moves out of the burbs and into the ghetto. That's that's what Jesus did. If you want to put it into like today's terms, he moved out of the burbs and into the ghetto. Down here with us, this was the ghetto compared to what he had with his father, okay? And he willingly moves into it because of God's deep and desperate love for us to belong to him forever. Jesus is rich. He has abundant life and perfect harmony with his Father. His life is untouched by sin. Could you imagine what that would be like? Yet he came down, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says, and he, and he, t- and he took up flesh to be like us, to be near us, so that we could be saved by him. And he came and he chose to become poor so that we could experience the Father's wealth of love. And if Jesus doesn't take on this bankrupt life of sin, bankrupt sinners never get out of debt. And we desperately need that. We are in a massive debt to God because of our sin. And not only did Jesus choose to become poor for us, but on the cross, I want you to think about this. Jesus was not the only one crucified 2,000 years ago on that day, on that Friday, right? He wasn't the only one. There were two other men that were crucified alongside of him, right? Now those two other men, what were their crimes that, why they were crucified? They were thieves. That's what Mark, Mark tells us, right? They were thieves. Jesus was murdered between two thieves on a cross. 
Now, one of those thieves mocks Jesus, and he says, you know, uh, if you're the Son of Man, just save yourself. But then the other thief kind of takes up for Jesus, and keep in mind, they're all dying of asphyxiation, right? They're suffocating to death because of how the cross works, right? And so the other guy takes up for Jesus, and, and, and he says something to Jesus after he does that. He says, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was kind of this Hail Mary thought that he had, that, that he believed in Jesus. He didn't believe in his old way of stealing anymore, and he was going to suffer its consequences, but he, he looks to Jesus and he says over his shoulder, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When all of this that you came to do for us is finished, and everyone sees who you really are, Jesus, every knee bows, you think there's any way you could remember me? You think there's any way you could know me, that guy that deserved to die on the cross, next to the guy that didn't deserve to die on the cross? And what does Jesus say to him? Today, because they were dying that day, you will be with me in paradise. thief on the cross. Jesus came for thieves like me and you. And God changes our greedy hearts by outgiving us. By outgiving anything that we could ever take for ourselves. You know, when you receive radical generosity, it changes you if your heart's open to it. It changes you deeply. I can remember one of the ways that I learned this deeply was actually when we lived in Indiana about 11 years ago. I was working another job uh, at nights uh, for a man that owned a landscaping company. And, you know, in Indiana, there's this stuff that falls from the sky called snow. I don't know if you guys have heard of it before. It comes down and it accumulates. It's, it's cold. And, um, and so I was working with him during snow season because his, you know, his uh, seasonal crew was off and, and we were dropping salt uh, that, that would melt the ice and the snow off the walks so that people could get in safely, and we were shoveling snow. And I'd done this for a few nights, and I, w- I would get up at nine o- 8 or 9 o'clock the next morning and go into my job as a youth pastor at the church, and, you know, we're just grinding to make it work. And uh, Ralph, his name's Ralph Hill, Ralph paid me that night. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. We're sitting in his garage. It's freezing cold. We just put up all the equipment, and... Um, and he, he gave me uh, some money. I don't know if it was a check or cash. I don't want to get him in trouble if it was like under the table or something. But uh, <laughs> that, that would ruin the whole illustration, right? Uh, but anyway, the point of the matter is his radical generosity toward me. Because I, we had agreed on hourly, hourly wage. And, um, and I, I, I was content to work for that. And he paid me double what he was supposed to pay me. It was like by two or $300 more money than I should have gotten. And, and he looked at me. Um, and I looked at him, and I gave like half of it back, and uh, or gave all of it back, and said, "Hey, write another check. That's not what you owe me." Because I was thinking, okay, this guy's going to overpay me. I don't want him to do that. He's been so gracious to me. And he quoted Galatians six ten to me when he and he gave it back to me. And he says this: "As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, always, especially those who belong to the household of faith." Now, Galatians chapter six is all about sowing and reaping. It's all about kind of kingdom investment. And for Ralph, the way that he saw kingdom investment that day was to give more generously than he had to to me. And I can tell you this, I walked away driving home in my truck that night, middle of the night, and I just thought to myself, I wish I knew God like that. I wish I knew God like that. Because Ralph that night taught me more about generosity um, 
any Bible study I'd done. So he put his money where his mouth was, and he showed me God that night. Lastly, God shares, we steal, God gives, and we steward. We steward because Jesus' Jesus' generosity toward us makes us generous people. So our our hearts, the human heart, will always revert to a posture of lack. You, You remember Y2K, if some of you weren't even alive then, but like Y2K, right? Like you go, it's, yeah. I don't know if you, we, for some reason, everybody thought the world was going to shut down because we're going into a new year. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. I'm not going to get into it, but people were like buying bread and, you know, canned goods. And I, I don't know. It had to be a great year for the grocery stores. That's all I'm saying. And, um, and it's because we were so scared that we were not going to have anything, right? We are so scared that the computer systems were not going to, like, update and, and, you know, everybody's going to go without. And so everybody freaked out and we just accumulated more and more and more. And some of you still have those canned goods in your pantry, right? You're never going to eat that many pinto beans. So, you, you know, and, and it's because we, we, our hearts revert to this posture of lack. And we get terrified when we think about the fact that we might not be provided for the way that we want to. And, um, and, and Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, um, charges us not just to not steal as Christians, but he says that it's not just about not stealing, but it's about also giving, because the only way to not steal is to give. And um, so just a reminder, in Ephesians, the first three chapters are this, this beautiful, poetic masterpiece declaring and explaining what Jesus Christ has done for sinners, it's this beautiful thing. It doesn't involve us at all. It's all God. He predetermined it. He did all of the work while we were dead in our sin. And it's by grace through faith that we're saved, he says. But then you get to Ephesians 4 through 6, and it talks about the implications of that lifestyle in the midst of the world. And one of the things that he addresses is this command. And I'll read it to you again. And I want you to listen for the echoes of the Garden of Eden here, okay? Because they're all over it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 Let the thief no longer steal, okay, the Eighth Commandment, but rather let him labor. That's garden language right there, right? Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The fact that God has called us each to labor and do honest work is a remarkable thing because it shows us that there's something wrapped up in our work that makes us come alive and in tune more with the Holy Spirit than anything else in our lives. He says instead of stealing and not trusting God's provision, we're going to flip this thing on its head. You're going to work so that you can give to others. Like that's the way the gospel works. We receive and we steward and now we give. We no longer take because we trust in Jesus and his work for our provision. The the interesting thing is this, is that work is so dignifying. It's so dignifying. Now, now in other parts of the scriptures, he says that we ought to to take care of our own families through our work. Like, that's a priority. He says, in fact, if you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Paul says that in other places. But it, it doesn't stop there. If our work only benefits ourselves, how can we call ourselves Christians? It's the whole thing the king came to do was to give his self away for the benefit of others. Our work cannot just stop with us and the benefits of it. If you ever had the opportunity to give to someone, 
that really needs something in a time. Maybe it's, it's someone you know, maybe it's a stranger. And, and what God begins to do in your heart is he begins to melt you. And that's what Jesus says is in Acts chapter 20, that it's better to give than to receive. It's not just like a, hey, let's get this church funded kind of a thing. And I even hesitated to talk about giving toward the church today, but it's, it's all over Scripture. It's not just about that. It's about your own well-being and joy in God. He says, give to others, work hard, do honest work so that you can have something to share with those in need. Because that is one of the things that makes us come alive as Christians more than anything else. I once heard Tim Keller preach a sermon. It was like one of those mic drop moments. You know what I'm talking about? Like you dropped the mic because it was like a boom. It was like dynamite. We're like all convicted. We all fell out. You know, it was crazy. And he says this, in a body, do you know what cells are called that only serve to benefit themselves? And he said, cancer. And we're like, oh, you know, like, because when we relate to our money in a way that only benefits ourselves, we have a cancerous understanding of money and possessions, a way, a, a way that's toxic. And so the best thing for us is to give. Now, it's going to look different for everybody. But greediness, stinginess, and stealing reveals a cancerous relationship with money and possessions, not one that God intends for us. So when we we translate that to the body of Christ, it's no wonder God gives us this command. Because stealing reveals a posture that's only concerned about self. But the gospel turns that upside down to where we're concerned with others. Close with this. Some of, the, some of you, this is going to hit harder than others, right? Some of you have dealt with this for a long time. Others of you are really wrapped up in this, right? You could, your mind is flooded with conviction right now. I get that. It hits us all differently, right, through the Ten Commands, but all of us are on the hook, we see. Do you know what Jesus came to do when he called his first disciples? He called this guy named Matthew, or in the book of Mark, he calls him Levi. He called this guy named Matthew to follow him. Do you know what Matthew Levi was doing when he called him to follow him? He was a tax collector. He was a white-collar criminal when he called him to follow him. He said, Matthew, get up and follow me. And the scriptures say that Matthew got up and he left the tax collector's booth and he began to follow Jesus. He left it all behind. In another instance, Jesus encounters this other tax collector, Zacchaeus, this little short guy. You know a song about it. I'll save you the, the lyrics of it. But... Um, and he calls, Levi, or he calls Zacchaeus to follow him, and Zacchaeus goes to his house, and we see that the way that grace works in Zacchaeus' heart is he pays restitution for all those that he stole from. He stole from so many people he couldn't even remember. They had to come and find him. Grace makes us generous, but he, Jesus Christ is not repelled by your sin. He's repelled by your unbelief and his grace. If that's you today, the call is this. Get up from the booth and follow him. Pay restitution if you need to. Make things right because Jesus Christ and his work will be enough provision for you. And we can say, I shall not want, like Psalm 23 says. So no matter where that hits you today, I want you to know that Jesus has not forgotten you. You have not outsinned his grace. But there's an opportunity to turn today. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we have, uh, especially in this country, a very broken relationship with money and possessions. Um, 
so broken that we don't even want to hear about it. We don't want to hear about it because we know that we're off. God, myself included. And Lord, um, the word says that the way that your grace works in our heart is that it turns our hearts upside down. Instead of taking, we turn into givers. Lord, there is an innate fear of giving anything away because we fail to believe that you are the provider of all things. So God, today as we consider this truth and consider what a life of faith might look like, would you be gracious to us? Would you lead us gently in this way? Would you provide every need that we have? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.